Welcome to It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland. Featuring stimulating in-depth interviews with special guests from all areas of the arts. And now, here's your host for It's a Question of Balance, Ruth Copland. Welcome to the show where we balance the intellectual with the creative, exploring whether we have more in common than divides us through thought-provoking conversations. For the topic hour, I go out and about and talk to people on the street about a wide variety of different subjects that affect us all, both locally and globally. And for this, the arts hour, I interview local, national and international guests from all areas of the arts. And the show combines a debate topic with an arts interview because I feel discussion and creativity are two of the most vital ways we engage with the world. My guest this week is New York Times and internationally best-selling author Michael Rutger, also published as Michael Marshall Smith and Michael Marshall, with a writing career spanning over 20 years. Michael writes dark suspense fiction with a hint of the supernatural and science fiction. He's the winner of the Philip K. Dick Award, the August Derleth Award for Best Novel, six British Fantasy Awards, and the only author ever to win the BFS Award for Best Short Story four times. Stephen King referred to Michael's Straw Men trilogy as a masterpiece brilliantly written, and Michael is currently working on developing Straw Men for TV. His novel Spares was optioned by Steven Spielberg's DreamWorks and his supernatural thriller The Intruders was adapted as a major BBC television series. As well as his many best-selling novels, Michael has also published nearly a hundred short stories. Born in Britain, he spent the first seven years of his childhood in Illinois and Florida, as well as a year in South Africa and another in Australia, before returning to the UK. Michael now lives in Santa Cruz, California, with his wife, son, and two cats. His latest books are Hannah Green and Her Unfeasibly Mundane Existence, published as Michael Marshall Smith, and the recently released Michael Rutger novel, The Possession. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much for taking the time to come into the studio. Your life is steeped in creativity, I'm wondering if you can remember the first time that art of any kind had a deep effect on you beyond just entertainment, whether it was a book or a picture or music or, or some other kind of art where you kind of realised there was perhaps more to art than just entertainment. Um, I think I think probably the earliest would have been music. My my father was and still is very fond of classical music and jazz and would play it quite a lot when I was a kid. And I think... I mean, of course, you know, people play music for any number of reasons, for mm. entertainment, for, for background, for whatever. But I, I just got the sense from that he was getting more from it than that. Um, and also, I mean, art is broadly defined. He's My father was also a writer. He's an academic writer. And so I would see, you know, when other people's dads on a Saturday morning were, you know, messing around in the garage or, or, or something, he would be sitting there writing uh, writing a book. And so mm. I saw that it's it's not, you know, art isn't just something that you go and get. It's it's something that you can create. And so I got that idea from a pretty early age, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, my next question was going to be, did you grow up in a creative environment? So it sounds well, like you did in a way. Creative in that sense. I mean, you know, people tend to think of, of creativity as only being making stuff up. But I think mm. anything which, you know, takes thought and emotion and information about the world and synthesizes it into, into something different you know counts as art and so i would definitely include you know journalism academia any number of any number of things that that try to marshal the world and put a stamp on it as art so yes in that in that sense i definitely do yeah yeah you went to uh, king's college cambridge where you were involved with the cambridge footlights which has spawned many successful people in the arts this led to you beginning your writing career in comedy for radio and then you moved on to short story and novel writing and the rest, as they say, is history. I'm wondering, though, what motivated you to start writing in the first place and to consider that as a potential career? Well, I think, you know, partly as I, as I, as I just said, I, I, I think for a lot of people the idea that books are something that, that exist out there in the world, but because I'd seen that my dad was actually making them, I, I understood that you could make them, and so that barrier was never there for me. It was always something that I knew that people could do. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, I read a lot as a kid. Um, we, when we moved back to England after living in the countries that you mentioned earlier, mm. my parents took the decision not to get a television. And so we listened to a lot of radio, which is a very, actually very verbal medium. It, you know, focuses you to think about words and what you can do with words. And I also read a huge amount. And so I guess probably in my early teens, I started jotting down little bits and pieces and, and just, you know, just limbering up a, get, a little bit, I think, in terms of thinking, well, I enjoy reading these kind of books. How difficult would it be to actually make one? And the answer mm. I soon realised was quite difficult. You can't yeah. just sit there as a thirteen-year-old <laughs> and think you're going to dash off a, off a novel. It doesn't really work that way. Um, but I had some fun with it. Um, and then um, I something I, I always really really loved when I was a kid, and there was a, a very strong vein of in England um, is radio comedy. You know, mm. some great great shows from the Goons onwards, and a huge amount of Hitchhiker's Guide, which was a which was a huge thing when I was in my mid teens. Yeah, and it was that, and starting to write some sort of sketch skit comedy, which was the first real writing that I did, and that's what I did when I went up to college and and started, you know, hanging out with the Footlights and doing that kind of stuff. And that was the first time that, because in a way, you know, comedy writing is is a, is a it's almost like poetry in a way, in that you you haven't got a lot of time, you haven't got a lot of words, and you've got to get your point across, mm. and it also teaches you fundamental things about word order you know you put the funny bit at the end of the sentence you don't have the funny bit at the beginning and then have more words to say because you've right. lost people and so it's yeah. actually quite quite useful from that point of view yes yeah i would also think perhaps from um the point of view with with radio um you know being a performance and, and the voice is kind of coming into your head that mm. that that in a way might help with storytelling you know of of how you imagine things in your head i mean do you feel like i think so i mean i yeah. i used to um you know I, basically the whole family when i was a kid when, well certainly my parents and i would sit and listen to plays on radio on radio four and there's a limit to what you've got you've got you've got the performances and you've got some background sounds and, and so on but really it's the words that that are going to conjure the picture are going to conjure the emotions and so on so i think again that kind of very verbally focused entertainment is another way of just sort of understanding how you see a movie and you know i love movies but there's a lot going on you know the you yeah. know um from the music the set the way it's shot the the kind of meta values that specific actors or actresses bring into it there's there's a huge amount of information there whereas if it's a if it's a radio play it's just what's being said and how it's being said and i think mm. that's it's interesting to focus 
focus down that hard on words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we're on the radio right now, but, you know, I think, you know, the whole video killed the radio star, which, of course, you know, it, it, it didn't, especially with the whole podcast revolution. Mm. But I think people tend to think that um, film or, you know, video is is better than radio. But I think it is a really different experience, isn't it? Hearing stuff. And it, it's much more analogous, in a way, to reading a book. Mm. You know, you're in your own world. Definitely. And I think that's one of these things that <clears throat> it's changing. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, there was this perception that movies were the huge, great big thing. Those, those, that was the big entertainment. That was the, the you know, the, the top of the pyramid, and that that TV tended to be sort of rather throwaway. Right. And what yeah. we've seen in the last ten, fifteen years is that being reversed. And the, you know, there's a huge amount of television at the moment. A lot of the very, very best stuff is being done on TV, and so I don't think that kind of hierarchy is is permanent. I think it's malleable. And I, I, I know people who are. TV writers and movie writers are actually spending quite a lot of time at the moment doing doing radio plays because of the freedom it gives them to do stuff. Yeah. Um, and because the expectations are different and because it allows them to focus down on the things they really care about rather than necessarily having to run through a whole bunch of other stuff which is super expensive or, or, or doesn't contribute to the story. So I'm not giving up on radio just yet. No, no. And also, of course, you are doing some... Um screenwriting yourself with developing the the straw men trilogy mm. and also working um i don't know if you're doing like screenwriting working with neil gaiman's company but being creative consultant you're also um looking at different ways of developing projects yeah i mean that's something that i've been doing for the last year um neil and i've been friends for 20 years and you know he's he's a busy man he's got a vast amount of stuff going on and what i what i'm there as a creative consultant to just try and help some of these projects move forward and to give an, another eye on scripts and things like that. He has a sufficient body of work being developed at the moment that he wanted a you know another eye, someone who shared a, a, quite a similar creative vision to just sort of help out with scripts and, de- and developing these projects forward because, you know, another obvious contrast between radio and something like film and TV is the vast number of people involved. And right, the vast yes. amounts of money involved, which tends to involve a certain amount of politics and machinations and so forth. And, yeah. you know, that's something that in my own way I'm just starting to get into, as you refer to the, the, the TV development of The Strawman, which is just at its sort of early stages. We've done a pilot. We're about to write a backup script and a Bible. It's slow. There's a lot of people a Bible involved. For our business. A Bible is something that basically if you're setting up a TV series what tends to happen is that once you've got past the initial pitching stage you'll then write a pilot which which will set up the show it's the Mm. first episode there are a number of jobs that you want that to perform but then in order to get what they call a series order to take the whole thing to a whole season you need a document which says okay that's how the story begins this is how the characters are going to develop this is how the story is going to develop these are the themes this is the tone this is where we hope to end the season up here are some thoughts about what we might do with subsequent seasons and so it's much more of a sort of global overview so that a studio or network know that they're not just buying you know a flashy pilot but that there's there's a genuine story which will which will keep moving onwards afterwards right Right, interesting. Well, if you just joined us, my special guest this week is Michael Rutger, also writing as Michael Marshall Smith and Michael Marshall, his best-selling, internationally best-selling author. We're going to go to a break now. We'll be back after these messages.
like the music from It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland? Have you ever wondered what the full songs sound like? Now you can find out by listening to the new EP, It's a Question of Balance Music, available from iTunes, Amazon, and It's a Question of Balance.com. It's a question of balance music. Download individual tracks or the whole EP from iTunes, Amazon, or it's a question of balance.com. Buongiorno, we are Luca and Giovanni from Bellagio. We bring to Pleasure Point Santa Cruz the first authentic Italian gelato and the traditional panini. Using family recipes from the old world, we offer the real taste of Italy. We use organic and locally sourced ingredients to create a healthy and delicious treat that will put a smile on your face. Gourmet panini, the real Italian gelato, fresh juices and more, just a block from the ocean. Come and visit us. You will feel like you are in Italia. Visit Bellagio at 743 41st Avenue in Santa Cruz. That's 743 41st Avenue. And follow Bellagio Santa Cruz on Instagram. guest from the arts this week Michael Rutger also published as Michael Marshall Smith and Michael Marshall with a writing career spanning over 20 years um, New York Times best-selling and internationally best-selling author as I mentioned Michael um, your most recent book um, the possession is, is written as Michael Rutger, um, available in hardback from all good bookstores now. And um, so I was wondering, putting on your Michael Rutger hat, can you tell listeners a bit about the story of The Possession without giving too much away? I'll, I'll, I'll try, yes. Um, ever since I was a kid, I, I've been really sort of fascinated by 
unsolved mysteries, sort of conundrums and weird things about the world. I mean, I think right. you know, for, for people of our generation, there were, there, were, there were writers like Eric von Daniken who came up with, you know, these outlandish theories about sort of aliens coming and landing in our prehistory and, and inventing our culture and so forth. And, I, you know, I, I think with these things, I've always taken them with a pinch of salt and thought, well, you know, it'd be cool if that was true. I don't necessarily think that it is true. But there's been this sort of abiding mystery um, about, you know, who built the pyramids exactly, or how did they build the pyramids exactly? Why did they build the pyramids? What happened to the colony at Jamestown? You know, any number of things all over the world. You know, Stonehenge, what is that in fact about? Um, But what I never actually found was a way of telling these stories. Um, and for the predecessor to uh, the possession called the Anomaly, I came up with the idea of basically um, a guy called Nolan Moore, who had previously been a screenwriter. He's now down on his luck. He's basically reinvented himself as an investigator of mysteries, and he has a show called The Anomaly Files, which goes out on YouTube. And it's a you know it's quite a low rent affair, but but, mm. but he does it because he he believes in. He believes in the sense of wonder that these these mysteries can give us, and that they force us to ask questions about about human history and about human nature and so forth. He doesn't, to be honest, quite often a lot of the time believe the things that he's actually investigating. Right. And so, what happens in the anomaly? The first book in the series is that no one is more surprised than him when he goes investigating something in the Grand Canyon and finds yeah. that he actually does find the thing he's gone looking for. And that it's incredibly dangerous. And so that's yeah. that's what that first book is about. Right. Now, the possession is a kind of follow up, and it's something I've. I've only ever done once before with, with the Strawman books because normally I finish a book and for me part of the pleasure of writing a novel is coming up with a new batch of people, a new environment. Um, but with the, when I finished the first of the Strawman books, which was called The Strawman, mm. um, I got to the end of the book and thought, you know, I'm not finished with this. I want, to, mm. I want to do more with the ideas. I want to do more with the characters. And I found that's what happened with the Anomaly Files books. Mm. Um, and so with The Possession is the continuing adventures, in effect. And it was just based off something that I, I read about a while back. Which, And, you know, these, these books, the ideas in them are true. It's a, mm. They're not made up from whole cloth. These are anomalous phenomena which are to be found in so far both times in America mm. and in the position in the possession it's about stone walls um, mm. and long story short in the in the northeast of America there are something like a quarter of a million miles of stone walls mm. dry stone walls which nobody really knows why they're there or who built them now I am mm. sure and you know the, the the generally accepted theory is that a lot of them were built by early settlers mm. to enclose animals and stuff. But a quarter of a million miles, yeah, that's that's a lot of walls. Not inconsiderable, you know, yeah. Especially for people who were living hard lives in tough winters, feeding themselves and so on. And so, yeah. people have asked, and it's not a particularly well known mystery, but it's it's something that's that sort of intrigued me. And I thought, well, what? Yeah. Why would you do that? What what are the motivations there? And then I found out that actually there's some in California as well. Um, there's some called the Berkeley Walls, just outside Berkeley. Yeah. And if you go further north up to around Shasta, which is a spooky and weird mm. place in its own right, mm-hmm. then there are more of these walls. And the odd thing about them, or one of the many odd things about them, is that they, they will be a 100-yard stretch, which is nowhere near high enough to stop anything, you know, a chicken could jump over it. Um, or they huh. will go up hillsides. Or they will go through lakes, which have been there for hundreds of years, and so you just wow. think, well, what that is going weird. on there? And that—that yeah. that was the basically the impetus for writing these things, to try and think, what was going on there? What kind of mysterious process could it be? And so basically, Nolan and his team go and investigate, and they get—they find out. That's the right. Problem, so. Yeah. Oh, huh. sounds very interesting. So, 
Um, it sounds like, you know, it would be satisfying to read the anomaly and then the possession, but could one just read the possession and then love it and go and read the anomaly or do you need to read them in order? Yeah, you can definitely read them. I mean, you know, because I, well, one of my favourite ever series of books um, is the Dave Robichaud novels by um, a crime writer called James Lee Burke. Mm. And I went in halfway through on those purely by accident. I read the back cover and I thought, this sounds like, and it was good enough that I thought, okay, I need to go back and I need to start mm. again. And all that did was give me a sort of interesting perspective on where I'd, mm. where I'd just been. There is, if if you happen to be someone, there's a copy of the possession lying around. You can absolutely read that and then go back and read the anomaly. There's nothing's going to be spoiled. On the other hand, should you be lucky enough to find the anomaly first or purchase it from any good bookstore, then that's probably the sensible way to start. Right. Yeah. So anyone listening who is intrigued by this, they can start start with the anomaly and then we'll buy them both. And then Indeed. You, why not? Then you're already <laughs> set up. Well, the anomaly's out in paperback now, so I mean, it's 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 available. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So um, the latest book as Michael Marshall Smith is Hannah Green and her unfeasibly mundane existence. And apart from being a wonderful story, I think this book should win an award for most creative title. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed it. It's funny and poignant and thought provoking on many lists, uh, many levels so uh, could you give listeners an idea of of, of that book a little yeah, bit I mean, yeah it's, i mean it's it's funny you know i've i actually slightly lost track of how many novels i've written now it's about 14 i think yeah and some of them are hard work and some of them are not hard work and mm. one of the things i love about hannah is that it was not hard work mm. um it was actually a huge amount of fun partly because of the way it started which is that it came initially from me telling bedtime stories to my son mm. um <laughs> Pretty I, scary bedtime well, story. Well, <laughs> I think he's he's actually quite resilient. Partly, probably because yeah. he's always had to put up with having having yes. me as a dad. But I mean, <laughs> basically, my wife and I have always alternated bedtimes, and so she yeah. would read from a book, and I would make things up. Oh, um, yeah. Which has the advantage of actually a little parent cheat here, I'm going to tell you, which is if you make these things up and you can tell that your child is getting a little bit sleepy, then you can slow mm. down the pace and make really boring things happen. <laughs> and so seriously, it used to take me half as long to get my son to sleep as it used to take my wife. Right. But I, quite soon after we moved here, I'd been making up the story around a bunch of characters which he knew from a TV show, and we had gone through every possible iteration mm. of this, and we were mm. both getting a bit bored with it. So then right. just one night, I thought, okay, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to make up a, okay, here's a little girl. She's about your age. She lives in the town where you live. And so it had that kind of immediacy mm. about it. And yeah. I was just making this stuff up in the dark for night after night. And then after a while, I started thinking, actually, I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this. I'm going to mm. start noting it down. Yeah. And it is. I mean, it's about it's about a, a girl of, of 13 or 12. I can't remember which mm. it is. Um, who basically lives in Santa Cruz and her life has stopped making sense. Her her parents have split up. Her mother is currently living in London because that's where her job has taken her. And so all of the environment, all of the things that she's known her whole life, everything that we know and love about Santa Cruz has started looking a bit sort of alien and strange to her. Mm. And there's a point where her dad starts to sort of not completely cope and decide. And so he decides that it might be best if she goes and stays with, with her grandfather. Mm. Um, and so she does go to stay with her grandfather, at which point she discovers that her, her grandfather is best friends with the devil, mm. which is obviously not something she was expecting or we no. would have expected. And One bear in mind, yeah. a lot of this stuff, as I say, was me making stuff in the dark for my son. And if, if he enjoyed it, I'd keep going with it. So, yes. um, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, they have adventures and a bunch of stuff happens. Um, but I think, in a way, I mean, I'm... I'm I try not to overanalyze what I write because I think sometimes that it can make it rather sort of tight. Yes, yeah. Um, but I yeah. think 
what I was trying to get at was both for my own head and also maybe trying to just sort of, you know, talk through with my son the idea that good and evil is a massive oversimplification. And that, right, you yes. know, because the devil is in this book and he's evil, there's no question of that, but he's mm. not necessarily bad all the time. Um, in the same way that if you end up with a situation where you have parents who are loggerheads with each other, mm. it doesn't mean that one's always right and one's always wrong because that's not the way that it works. No. Similarly, parents are not always right and children are not always right either. And so I think it was a way of trying to look at these dualisms and just try to just spin them around a little bit. Yes, yeah. If you just joined us, my guest this week is New York Times and internationally best-selling author Michael Rutger, also published as Michael Marshall Smith and Michael Marshall. And uh, we're currently talking about his book, Hannah Green and her unfeasibly mundane existence. There's been some pushback recently from Christian groups, specifically about good omens on Amazon Prime, stating that the devil is being made to appear light and acceptable and that such nuanced slash light-hearted treatment of the devil is, is promoting evil. And obviously going back to Milton's unintentional, much more interesting treatment of the evil side of things in Paradise Lost, we've seen evil humanized, shall we say. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this criticism and, and whether that was something you considered at all before writing Hannah Green and her unfeasibly mundane existence? No, I mean, I, di I didn't consider it. And, and to, be, uh, to be honest, I think it's absolute nonsense. Um, I think, you know, if you look at it historically, the idea that, that there are these dualisms, that there is good and that there is evil, is actually, in religious terms, a relatively recent development. For a long, mm. long time, what we had before was a pantheon of gods. We had right, a far yeah. more gods who were far more attached to the more Jungian undercurrents in our lives far more subtle far more fluid yes and that yeah. gave everybody an opportunity to sort of understand that they were they didn't have to be a good or a bad person that there were behaviors that happened in people's lives sometimes as a result of external circumstances sometimes as a result of your own character sometimes your parents character. So a huge number of things influence our behavior at any given yeah. time and if you have a whole bunch of gods mm. then they can help you interpret that if you just yeah. have a bad guy and a good guy then really you get drawn into extremely rigid, polarized ways of looking at mm, things. Yeah. And so I'm afraid from a, from a religious or spiritual point of view, I simply disagree. Yeah. Well, I think perhaps it's a reflection of um, how we seem to be going as a society in, in the West uh, of everything becoming sort of dualistic and very black and white, yeah. you know, where the yeah. shades of gray are, are getting lost, aren't they? No, so, absolutely. Yeah. And this is one of the sort of things that that there was that became an idea in the possession to jump to the other book because mm. about walls. I mean, walls yes, are a very yeah. significant thing. If, if you've got a, an open space, then you're all the same. As soon as you put a wall, then you're on one side and the other are on the other side. And so, again, it's about splitting yes. a dualism, a physical dualism. And, of course, walls have a particular resonance in the political yeah. environment at the moment. So yes, in America, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Hannah Green and her unfeasibly mundane existence is set here in, in Santa Cruz, California, and it uses the real names for places and restaurants, for example. And obviously only Santa Cruz residents will know that they're actual real places. But I'm wondering what it does for you as a writer to totally embed your story in a real context rather than 
fictionalizing background elements you know slightly or to whatever degree whether it, it changes how the story forms in your mind you know I, I always thought it would be easier to do that because for a long time I was writing novels set in America when I was sitting in North London in the UK um, and I thought okay you know when, when I'm writing them set in America it'll be easy but it, it absolutely isn't because you think okay well hang on a minute I've got to get that character from there to there I know what the traffic's like on a Saturday afternoon. I can they really do that in the time? And you get wrapped up in this sort of minutiae. Whereas if you're just making up a place, which I did in The Possession, which is, okay, it's set in, in Northern California, which I kind of know, but it's an amalgam of different places that I've mm. been to. And so, yeah, if someone needs to get from A to B in 10 minutes, they can do it They'll because do it's it. my place and so I've invented it. Yes. Um, yeah. And so it's weird. I mean, it's, it's good in a way because it gives you the chance to really try to capture the flavor of someone. I don't know whether I've done that, but it's, it's part of what one tries to do. But it does, it does place an additional constraint on you. Yes, yeah. Um, we are here written as um, Michael Marshall was the first book you wrote in Santa Cruz. Have you noticed a change in how you write generally since being based in America? You, you, you know, you mentioned that you've previously written from Britain mm. about America. Has it, has it changed I think living here? The, I think there are certain things um, that I think probably, I mean, because... I spent some early life in America. I think there were, there were certain things about America that I possibly had a, a slightly more innate understanding of than someone who had, you know, had grown up here a little bit or haven't visited. Mm. But, but I realize, and, you know, it'll be a lifelong journey, I realize that since I've been here in terms of specific things like word usage and, and pacing and certain cultural things, which which I'd never sort of picked up on before because it's always the tiny things. It's it's like light switches, you know, the fact that they work an opposite way here to the way they do in the UK. Right, um, yes. And yeah. it's, I, honestly, it's taken me eight solid years of living here that I now look at a light switch and intuitively know, oh, it's that rather than the other way. It's taken that long because it's those tiny things yeah. that often make the difference. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how ingrained... It can be. I know one time I, I got stopped for speeding here and, and I said to the policeman, I said, well, you know, I, I'm I'm from Britain, you know, I, I'm used to different speed limits and, you know, being on the other side, you know, whatever. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, well, how long have you been here? And I, I said, I don't know, at that point it was, I don't know, like eight years or something. <laughs> and he, of course, instantly dismissed that. But I still felt it was sort of valid because it, it's crazy how long those things that you've done over and over and over. I'm not yeah. suggesting I drive on the wrong side of the road, but, you know, Good. just, yeah. <laughs> no, there are certain types of sort of yeah. physical and mental muscle memory, which when they've yeah. been there for a long time, they're very, very hard to... So that's something I definitely try to increasingly keep an eye out for. Yes, yeah. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special arts guest this week, New York Times and internationally best-selling author Michael Rutger, also published as Michael Marshall Smith and Michael Marshall. We're going to break now, but we'll be back with more conversation after these messages. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm the second-generation owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. We pride ourselves on being Santa Cruz's community bookstore. We feature an extensive selection of new and used books, children's books and toys, gifts, cards, magazines, and games. Our knowledgeable booksellers can help you find just the right book or gift. 
We hope you can join us for our author events each week featuring best-selling authors and books of local interest. And if you can't get downtown, our website has over 3.2 million titles which ship directly to your home. We even have experts on site to help you publish your own book or family history. Come visit us downtown or at our website, bookshopsantacruz.com. Bookshop Santa Cruz has been an independent bookseller for over half a century in the community we love. Visit Bookshop Santa Cruz downtown. We love our customers and the books that make it all possible. Bookshop Santa Cruz, online and in downtown Santa Cruz. Can you imagine living without stress, anxiety, or fear? And can you imagine a life filled with harmony and inner peace? Is that even possible? The Ananda Yoga and Meditation Center in Scotts Valley offers simple tools to help you become more effective at work and more centered in the face of life's challenges. At Ananda, we offer yoga classes for everybody, inspiring workshops, devotional chanting, and Sunday services based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Our teachers and therapists are highly trained professionals who work together to inspire a healthier you. And your first Ananda Yoga class is always free. Visit us at anandascottsvalley.org or call 338-YOGA. That's anandascottsvalley.org or 338-YOGA. Welcome back. You're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Coughlin, and my special guest this week, New York Times and internationally best-selling author, Michael Rutger, also published as Michael Marshall Smith and Michael Marshall. His latest books are Hannah Green and Her Unfeasibly Mundane Existence, published as Michael Marshall Smith, and the recently released Michael Rutger novel, The Possession. So, We've been talking about those a bit and um, remember if you are local to Santa Cruz that you should go to Bookshop Santa Cruz in order to buy Michael's books. I would encourage supporting your local independent bookstore or wherever else you may be listening. Try and support your local independent bookstore. It's still fabulous to be able to actually go in and look at books and feel them and sit there and, and see what you might like to read. So... Uh, Michael, I'm very interested in the psychologist Alice Miller who wrote at length about how art can help people process difficult events, whether these are events they've experienced themselves or events they've witnessed. And I'm wondering if you feel art can have a, a healing effect or any capacity to help us process things, both for those making art and those experiencing it. I, I think absolutely without question um, from from both sides. I mean, I know that the first short story that I ever wrote, um, which was called The Man Who Drew Cats, I know that that was an absolutely transparent attempt by by me to get mm. through a particular thing that was happening mm. um, to me at the time or something that I was sort of, as you say, trying to process. And I think that kind of cathartic um, element that, that creation can have um, is absolutely essential. Um, 
to both the person who's creating it and to the person reading it because there's a one of the things that art does is it universalizes and so the number of times that I've had people say to me that they've enjoyed things in books because it made them realize that they weren't the only person who was feeling it or that they weren't alone feeling it. And sometimes that's all you need mm. because we can get trapped in our own bubbles, trapped in our own heads, trapped in a sort of maelstrom of sort of anxious or repetitive thought. And because that's deeply individual and it's always based, uh, based in individual events and your, your own individual psychology and, and history – you think, well, this this is just my problem. There's no this this this, yeah. this is uniquely me, and I'm uniquely bad, and I can't get out of this. Right. And to be able to think, oh well, actually, they had something remarkably similar happen to them. Mm. Um, it kind of just pricks the bubble a little bit. And so I think there's the cathartic element that can happen in terms of creation. There's a sort of reassurance and universalizing effect. And also, there are simple things like, I mean. I'm I'm a pretty lousy guitarist, but but I know sometimes the best thing for me to do is to go and sit somewhere quietly with nobody listening and just play the same three chords again in slightly different ways for 40 minutes. Mm. And that, I think, has a kind of meditative effect, mm. partly just the, the, the repeated motion, the vibration of the guitar. I mean, this all sounds very hippie, but, you know, people have been doing it for 40, 50, mm. 60,000 years, so there's probably right, something, something right it, about yeah. it. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, all of these things that... that Take us out of the the normal melee, calm our thoughts, enable us to feel that we can either express ourselves or that somebody is expressing something for us. I mean, I think these are absolutely essential. I think a world without art would self-destruct within days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is fascinating, I think, you know, when you look back through history especially more ancient history i mean what mainly survives is art isn't it you know it is i mean yeah. it's extraordinary i was reading a, a, a really interesting book um which i just finished i unfortunately i think the author was called will hunt and it's called underground mm. and it's basically about our both secular and sacred responses to subterranean spaces and how these have mm. been deeply important to us for a long, 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 tens of thousands of years. Yeah. And how very often people would go to this extraordinary lengths to go into really quite unpleasant, freaky caves yeah. to create things like the, the caves of the so or the or you know particularly you know carved bison which are half a mile underground and so forth and yeah it is it's it's art is how we express art is how we sort of say we are bigger than the fact that we are hungry today we are bigger than the fact yeah. that that one of our tribes people has just died there is something that persists there is something that we can create and i think mm. it's it's an essential part of of humanity mm. and possibly other species because you know yes, sometimes yeah. i think you know, my cats will just trick bits of stuff around the house, like some sort of ritual or mm. I, who knows whether it's cat art. Yeah. I just, I don't yeah. know. You know, I think I think sometimes it's a mistake to think that we're the only creatures, um, yes. which yeah. is, you know, again, I have a problem with, you know, certain types of very fundamentalist Christian, which is that, you know, we have dominion over the creatures and it's... Yes, absolutely. You know, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, not only do we do that, you know, and just think that we're the most important thing here, but we tend to do it to humanity in the past and, and mm. assume that we are at the pinnacle of civilization now and to judge lives, especially if you, you go back a long time, you know, as if there are any goals in life were just to survive, to eat mm. and be warm, mm. you know. And I, I think um, clearly there's evidence that that isn't the case, that they had higher needs and they met them, you know. A, a yeah. hugely long time ago. And it's, it's not even just our, you know, quote species. You know, the Neanderthals were, were creating art yeah. um, and often doing so in extreme conditions. And that shows that 
both that it's a deeply important innate process and also that, you know, a bit like what we were talking about in terms of radio and TV, these things are cycles. There'll be times when something's important, one culture has dominance, there'll be times when another culture is, is yeah. dominant. And I think sometimes we just see a lot of people being afraid that the things that they like are about to disappear or might be under threat from the outside. Um, it's not the same as things going away. Yes, yeah, no, that I think that's absolutely true. In California, um, creative writing and fiction reading are, are being somewhat usurped in the new school curriculum by so-called practical reading and analytical writing. Um, I'm wondering, sort of related to what we were just talking about, what are your thoughts are on whether it's necessary for children to have fiction reading and creative writing as part of their education it's 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 a it's a good and difficult question i mean my my gut says that yes of course they should be encouraged to read fiction uh, in the same way that yes of course they should be encouraged to play musical instruments i mean i think these are fundamental things that like learning a foreign language is are not only good and useful for their own sake but actually help with cognitive development and social development and a whole bunch of things um you could make a corollary argument that which is that if 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 a child is not interested in fiction um if mm. you keep stuffing them full of fiction or forcing them to read fiction then all you're going to do is make sure they never ever pick up a book again again in their lives yeah. um and so i don't know what the answer is to that um i mean i i would love to believe that that schools will provide a a, a broad and balanced curriculum that has space for all of those things mm. rather than saying yeah. no basically our job is to turn out well behaved people who can go and work mm. in startups or, or because you know that is not the only fruit um yeah but i think what you again tend to find is that if, if you push humankind into a box it kicks yeah and it climbs back out again and i think you know as soon as people start thinking well hang on a minute i'm not being allowed to do this or i'm being encouraged mm. to do this yeah then they'll particularly teenagers i mean god you know that's, yes. that's what they live for doing the thing that they <laughs> just told them they're not supposed to do so yeah i don't know yeah. I, I i i hope it'll all it'll all figure yeah. itself out yeah, yeah. One of my recent guests, um, Esther Wojcicki, who's a renowned educator and thought leader, um, the way she approaches it and, and has done for the last 40 years is allowing her students to choose the book that they want to write about for their reports. Mm -hmm. and, and with the idea being that then they're going to be much more invested in, um, you know, I assume she must have some parameters, but well, I was going to say because yes, the problem is if yeah. if you say that to a kid and they say, "Well, I don't read," then suddenly you've got a problem. I don't think they're know. allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, some yes, people. I yeah. mean, it's it's odd. You yeah. know, my 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 sister and I were brought up in the same family at the same time. Yeah, I read voraciously as a child. She didn't. Yeah, um, she reads now, but she didn't then. Um, yes, and yeah. it's it's one of those things like different types of intelligence. You know, Absolutely, yeah. you know, different people have different them developing minds, at different yeah. speeds and you can't you can't jam people in a box or having said which I, I you know for what tiny bit I know about parenting which is invisibly small <laughs> just giving people the opportunity to walk through doors eventually they're going to walk through the door you didn't want them to but as long as they go off and do the thing they want to do and then they're engaged and enthused then they're off on their own journey at that point. So just giving them, I would hate the idea that people aren't given the opportunity to read fiction, right, not encouraged yes. to. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think yeah. it'll, it'll damage them. Right. Yeah. If you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copeland, and my special guest, New York Times and internationally bestselling author, Michael Rutger, also published as Michael Marshall Smith and Michael Marshall. Um, 
I wanted to ask you, I, I interviewed um, Man Booker Prize winning author Marlon James on the show and um, he actually, he teaches writing and, and one of the things that he, he has in his classes is that, um, characters arise out of our need for them and this is somewhat linked to what we were talking about a little earlier but I'm wondering how much you think the creative process and also consuming fiction is a means of integrating inner parts of ourselves. I mean, one would assume that maybe some of the characters come because you need them and some are just literally conjured. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting idea. And I, th I think that, that, I mean, I think with, with most rules or guidelines in general, but particularly when it comes to creating you know they're true some of the time, and they're true. They're not true some of the time. But uh, you know the question is what they give you. Um, I think yes, it is possible that there are sometimes when you come up with with characters and they are meeting some kind of inner need in terms of either wanting you wanting to be able to express certain types of emotion or put them in a certain type of circumstance so you can explore certain types of things. Mm. But sometimes you just need a guy working behind a counter in a gas station and you put him there not because you need him in any gestalt right. way, but yes. because you need something to happen at that point in the story. Yes, yeah. Um, but it's, I, I don't know. I mean, to be absolutely honest, I've never taken a creative writing course. I've never read a creative writing book. I am kind of almost purely superstitious about the process because mm. I just don't really understand how it works. Yes, I, I, yeah. I have an idea. I have an idea for characters. Then sometimes very easily, sometimes with enormous tooth-pulling difficulty, a mm. story and narrative and plot will, will, will emerge. Mm. And it's almost one of those things that I don't want to open the box cause, because yeah. then you might see how the strings work and, you know, not be able to do it anymore. So I don't know. Some people, some people have very joined up thinking about how they create and that works for them. I have very inchoate, vague ideas about how I create and so far that has touched wood more or less worked for me. So. Yes, I think, well, I can definitely say that, yeah. And um, I think also it's a relatively new phenomenon, this idea of studying creative writing and, and how to write. Uh, I've talked to some, you know, writers that I've interviewed who've sort of done courses and uh, I mean in the past it was literally the, the it was reading that predominantly helped you to be a writer you know which yeah. is extensive wide reading you know not preferably I think to be a really good writer you're not just reading one genre mm. you know but reading a very wide mm. so it's sort of a, an intriguing thing to me to think one could even really be taught how to write I mean I guess in some ways one can perhaps you know but directionally I, I think I, I think you probably can. Again, it's 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 related to what we were saying earlier in terms of education, in terms of different people respond to different things. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, the, the, the way I learned to be a writer is by reading vast numbers of books. Um, and very often when you start writing, the impulse, whether conscious or otherwise, is to write something like the stuff that you've enjoyed. Mm. And after a while, you realize, actually, well, yeah, I do like certain writer but I also like the other writer so is there some way of bringing the two together and then after a few years you realize you don't actually sound like either of them it's mm. just it's just been a way down the path and that's a kind of self-tutored sort of way yeah and that worked for me it works for a number of writers but 
But for other writers, sometimes a slightly more cerebral approach to start off with more analytical um, mm. works because that's the way their brain works. There's also a practical consideration in that if you put if you go on a creative writing course for two three years, that basically mandates and validates and gives you the opportunity yeah. to focus on yeah. writing in a way that I you know I, I was doing a job at the time and so yeah. it took me quite a while. Whereas if you say okay, I've got three years and I, I want to come at the end of this with a novel or at least a bunch of short stories or something, yeah, it's you know I. I I have no judgment. Whatever works for you. Writing is one of those things that just whatever works for you, then do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is one of the main values, I, mm. I would say. I mean, it's sort of a unique opportunity to mm. just focus on on writing. We've been talking about um, your latest books, Hannah Green and her unfeasibly mundane existence and also The Possession. One never knows how a book will be received. You know, you, you can't control that really, unfortunately. But I'm wondering what your criteria are for being satisfied with a book, to feel that it's ready to go out in, in the world. I mean, mm. with those two books, was it different for each of them? You know, how, how do you, I mean, obviously you have deadlines at a certain point, you have to give it to them. But, you know, is there something internally where you think, yes? They're, they're, I mean, deadlines are one of the prime motivators. I have to yeah. say, yeah. Um, but but no, you're. I, I mean, the, the, there is a thing. You know, you know, it's you, you know whether it's ready. And the truth of the matter is that you know, almost like, and I know this sounds overblown, but the novels feel to me like children. You know, they've been written over the last twenty some years, and. I love all of them. Some of them have mm. gone out to the world and have achieved success. Some of them have had rather quieter existences, but they've all been part of my life. Um, they've yeah. all been something that has that has meant a great deal to me to be have been a part of. And there just comes a point, I guess, a little bit like with a child, where you think, you know what, it's been great, and we'll always have a relationship and have love, but it's time for you to stop living at home and go and go and deal with the world. I've done what I can. Yeah. You know, you're not perfect. Neither am I, but you know, on we go. And that's certainly that case with books. I come to a point where I think, well, okay, you know, this is not perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but it's time to let it go. Right. Yeah. To some degree, promotion has been given back to the author in terms of social media presence. Although some authors still don't engage um, in that way. I imagine that social media presence is something that a publisher would like to curate to a large degree in terms of what they want their author to be putting out there. You have quite a defined presence on Twitter where you have strong opinions and I'm wondering how you see that intersecting with your writing career if you do at all or whether you see yourself as a private citizen in that capacity it's very true i mean when when i first started um writing novels the publishing industry was structured slightly differently there were there were very big and strong marketing departments there were very big and strong publicity departments and those departments still exist and a lot of very good people in them do very good work mm. but the the way the way of that we used to market and publicize books in terms of specific author events in terms of specific adverts and stuff that has to a quite a degree fallen by the wayside you're absolutely right basically mm. authors are expected to go out there and promote themselves mm. now it's almost the idea that you would get one of the most you know often introverted 
not socially integrated groups who spend their entire lives. Okay, so you, sir, we want you to spend 364 days a year in a quiet room talking to nobody and typing. And then we want you to go out and talk to a whole bunch of people and be very big and up and peppy. And, you know, that's it's always been a hard, hard mix, to be honest. Yes. But so you can do one or two things on social media. You can either say, okay, I am just here to flog my books. And so I will constantly be talking about my books and here's another review of my book and who's somebody else who says my book is lovely. And and, and one has to do a certain amount of, of that because mm. you have to raise the profile of the book. That's part of the job. But I also tend to think that gets a bit tedious. And so basically, if you follow me on Twitter, if you follow me in any social media, you're going to get what it is that I think about stuff. Now, that may make some of you think, well, I'm never reading any of his books again. He seems like a, you know... <laughs> And it may make an equal or lesser or greater number think, well, okay, well, I kind of agree with that. I'll read his book. I suspect a lot of people just think, okay, well, he thinks this about this. On the other hand, he's got a book that sounds interesting. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to do that math. But basically, yes, on Twitter, you will get what I think about stuff. Yes. Um, and once, once every now and then, I'll try and sell you a book because that's my job. Yes. So what? give some social media information if people would like to follow you. Um, uh, well, on pretty much everything, it's, it's MMS, which is based off Michael Marshall Smith, but it's done in an annoying spelly way, which is E-M-E-M-E-S-S. So I am at MMS on Twitter and Instagram. And Facebook or Facebook? I, I don't do. I mean, Facebook. Don't it's, do much, yeah. I, I, it's really just for keeping in touch with, with friends, friends at home. But, like I, that. I, yeah. but I mean, what you will find, should you make the mistake of following me, is I'm a lousy self promoter. And so once every now and then I'll, I'll seem to remember that I am actually an author. <laughs> and I'll, for like a 24 hours, I'll say, book, 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 and then my attention will drift again. So don't worry, it doesn't go on forever. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, we've only got about a minute left but I wanted to ask um you've said that you do have to develop quite a thick skin being a writer because you can't control how a book is received and this seems increasingly relevant with the ability of basically anyone to publish their opinion whether it be of dubious value or not via the internet and the way that can gain traction for a whole lot of reasons that one can't also control both Mm. negatively and positively I'm wondering what your thoughts are on 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 how you approach this in artist as an artist and and how you reach a place of equanimity equanimity about it (laughs) well i i think the thing is um you know and it's it's not just artists it's also it's also hotels you go on TripAdvisor and someone's trashed a hotel because they got a parking ticket or because the weather wasn't very good and so forth and this is the thing that i think has always been important um in all realms of life and this is the the thing that i think also is incredibly important that we keep teaching our kids which is how to learn how to discriminate Mm. between information which is true and valuable and opinions which are true and valuable and if you bought one of my books and you hate it and you go on amazon and say you hate it and say why you hate it i absolutely respect that yes um if you just go and say, oh, this is rubbish, then I, I, you know, you might as well just not have done it. Yes, but yeah. I will still, if I'm absolutely honest, if if some randomer says I hated the book, I'll go, well, okay, well. If some journalist who I, whose work I know, who has a great deal of experience in the field, mm. hates my book, then I will sure as hell pay attention. Yes, and so it's, yeah. it's developing that sort of like, who do you listen to? How much weight do you give it? Everybody's opinion um, is worth expressing, but that doesn't mean it's always worth listening to yes yeah good distinction well thanks so much michael for coming in and talking to us i really appreciate it and uh, just to remind listeners again that michael's latest books are hannah green and her unfeasibly mundane existence which is published as michael marshall smith 
and the recently uh, published in hardback book, The Possession, um, which is uh, under the name Michael Rutger. So thanks again, Michael. Thank you very much. um, Thanks for listening and I'll see you again next time.